This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. School anxiety. Transitions make us anxious. A lot of families are feeling worried about going back to school, both the kids and the parents. How do we help our kids with this back-to-school worry? What's typical? And how do we look for signs of school avoidance and refusal? Welcome to Fluster Clucks, where we talk worry and other big feelings with Lynn Lyons. You're here because your family has some anxiety issues or you want to prevent them. I'm your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law, Robin, and I'm here to ask your questions. And hi, I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for 30 years. Parenting can be a fluster clucks, and I will help you find your way. So Lynn, we're entering this next chapter of the pandemic, and so many kids are going to be going back to school full time. And I saw on your Facebook page that so many guidance counselors and mental health practitioners were commenting on the topic of school avoidance and how they're seeing so much of it and how a lot of children and teenagers are very anxious about going back to school. What is going on? Yeah. So I'm obviously hearing a lot about that too, a lot about kids going back to school and re-entry, and then certainly the concern about school avoidance and school refusal. School avoidance and school refusal, which basically mean you've got a kid who doesn't go to school. It gets It's really hard to get them into school. It could happen when kids are little, like when they're in first grade or second grade. It also can certainly happen when kids are in high school. And it's a huge issue. And it's really something when I'm working with schools and I'm working with school counselors and psychologists that can really eat up a ton of resources and causes so much distress for families and so much distress for, for schools. So it's not surprising that there's a lot of talk about that. And there's a lot of anticipation that it's going to be problematic. I think when we talk about schools going back, I think when we're talking about school re-entry, that's different than school refusal and school avoidance. Let me just talk a little bit about how I am seeing these in two different categories. School re-entry really involves kids that have been out of school for a long time, obviously, or have been in a hybrid model and now they're going to go back full time. And as one person wrote on my Facebook page when they were commenting, that they're feeling like kids are going to be a little rusty going back to school. There are kids that are not anxious and kids that didn't have school refusal issues in the past, but actually have found this schedule even this hybrid model, to be kind of nice. So these were kids that always went to school. They didn't even know that going to school wasn't an option, right? They got up in the morning and they went to school. But maybe Sunday night was kind of a bummer and the parents were like, oh God, the Monday after a vacation is always a little harder to get my kid going. These aren't the kids that are jumping out of bed ready to go to school because they love it. These are kids that being home has been kind of fine. And there are also kids who being home Whether it's been fine or not, it's the routine. So now it's thinking about how do we get them back into the routine of getting up in the morning and getting out of the house and families thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to feel so different because of what we've been doing for the last several months. The school refusal piece, and I'll talk about that in a moment, is really something that probably was in place before 
families that really struggled getting their kids into school, and it really is a mental health issue. And now they're really panicked because it's going to show up with bells on when kids are going to have to go back to school. So let's talk about the reentry thing first. A few important things. One I've noticed in talking to children and adults is that the parents are much more concerned about that than the kids. And not surprisingly, being social creatures that live in families, kids are listening to what parents are saying about that. Kids actually have been pretty darn adaptable at school during this. Like they hate the remote learning at this point. But when they're in school, the kids that I talk to, and remember, I see anxious kids, they're saying like, yeah, we've adjusted to the masks and we're figuring it out. And they like to be in school, kids that don't have school refusal issues. If they're talking about going back to school full time, like five days, some kids are really excited about that. And the main issue that I hear about that reentry is that it's just going to be hard to get back on that schedule. So think about it as returning to school after summer. Think about all of you who are listening who might be teachers and who might be educators. Think about how hard it is for you once you've had the summer off, if you haven't been teaching over the summer, just sort of like get your momentum going again. I think that's a lot of it for kids right now. They've enjoyed sleeping in. They've enjoyed having less pressured time schedules. I also think that's really important for us to pay attention, United States of America, is that kids are rejoicing in the fact that a pandemic took them out of their crazy schedules. So let's just all tuck that away for future use. But this idea that they're going to go back to school and it's going to be so hard, I think we're overblowing that. I honestly do. I think it's going to take a little while. I think it's going to take some getting used to just like it does in the fall, but it's not going to be as catastrophic as I'm hearing people say. People are using things like, we're so concerned about how kids are going to adjust when they come back, and it's going to be like falling off a cliff, and we're, we're so worried about how they're going to relate to each other again. We're social beings. We're designed to be together. This isolation is the not normal part and the social relating part is the normal part. So let's just not get our knickers all in a twist about that. What I'm hearing you say is that there are many parents who have children who had no issues going to school before the pandemic. And if they are making a thing out of this, the parent is likely the source. Correct. For the parents who had kids who didn't want to go to school before the pandemic, they are anticipating a struggle that is quite justified. It is absolutely justified. And so let's talk about that problem. Because if you had a child that hated school because of anxiety, if you had a kid that had a really hard time getting back into school just like at the beginning of every school year was just a nightmare. Even every Sunday night and Monday morning is a nightmare. It is absolutely reasonable to anticipate that if they've been out of school for a long period of time, that having them go back into school, their reentry is going to be different. So we want to start talking about it now, and we want to start talking about it in terms of how worry is going to show up 
so let me give you an example, right? So say you've got a 10-year-old and this has been a problem and, and they've had a really difficult time getting into school. We want to talk about it very openly. And this is what it would sound like. You know, we know that for you getting into school was really hard before the pandemic, right? Because we were working on your worry and in the morning you would have tummy aches and you would feel really overwhelmed some days. And we were really working on talking to the worry when it showed up and recognizing these patterns. We really did a good job and it wasn't perfect, but we were really doing a good job of you being able to handle the uncertainty of going into school. And then the pandemic happened and I totally get that you and your worry were like, woohoo, we don't have to go to school anymore. And it actually has been really nice for you, hasn't it? So now we're talking about going back to school and it really is feeling to me, you would say to the child, it really is feeling to me the same way it does at the end of the summer, right? Because you know, at the end of the summer, remember how when the calendar turns from July into August, you start thinking about going back to school and you feel like your summer is coming to an end. And I would say to you, but we have three more weeks and you would start worrying about it. That's what's going to probably happen as we get back into the rhythm of school again after the pandemic. So let's start thinking now about what we want to do when worry shows up. Let's start thinking now about what the patterns are that we know can make the worry more powerful. And let's start thinking about how you and I are going to start practicing getting back into the rhythm of school, talking about school, and really working on making sure that your worry doesn't absolutely take charge when we start going back to school. So there's going to be a lot of pre-talk. And this is what I say all the time. You can't deal with this on the first day back to school. You can't deal with it even a week before school starts again. This is why you talk about front-loading. Yeah, this is front-loading. So important because we're not going to be able to deal with it during the crisis. Because that's when the amygdala is already fired up, right? So when the amygdala is fired up, that's the fight or flight or freeze response. That prefrontal cortex, that ability to plan, that ability to think rationally, that ability to pull up your resources, all of that is not really accessible. So we want to do it ahead of time. I would even, for, for younger kids, you could do this with older kids too. So for younger kids, I would start writing things down. I would get a journal or a notebook or a piece of paper or a whiteboard and I would say, let's write down what we think worry is going to try and do as we talk about going back to school and start brainstorming. Do you remember what worry used to do to you? Yep. Oh, it would tell you that you had a tummy ache. Yep. What else? It would tell you that you couldn't handle this. And let's talk about what we did in the past that really helped when you came up against your worry. So let's think about that because it could be, it feels so long ago, maybe we, we forgot, but remember you did this and maybe some of the things you did as a family is that you did some role playing where you talked to the worry and you said to the worry, you're not going to be in charge. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. 
Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook, you can add events directly using the touch screen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color-coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up. So order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. Parents, think about safety behaviors. 
Safety behaviors are the things that you put in place to accommodate or assuage the worry and make sure that as you're getting your anxious child, your school avoidant child back into school, that you don't start putting those safety behaviors back into place. So for example, and I'll give you an extreme one, but this is a real one. There was a child who would finally get on the school bus, but would only get on the school bus if mom followed the school bus in the car behind the school bus so that the child could keep an eye on the mom the whole time. If there are things that you were able to get rid of or things that you were able to move out of with your child and their anxiety, do your very, very best not to put them back into place and really start talking about the absolute normal expected response that worry is going to have when we say to worry, guess what? This really great seven months or eight months or 12 months of avoidance, this is coming to an end. Do some role playing. Have your child be able to articulate and talk to you about what worry is going to say so that you expect it when it shows up. When you mentioned the example of the mother putting the safety crutch in place, it sounds mm-hmm. like you're also talking about don't allow regression Start where the progress had finished before the pandemic. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. Don't allow regression. Like as you're saying that, Robin, it's just such a a good thing to remember. It doesn't mean that you don't talk about what worry is going to try to do. And and sometimes people say, well, I don't want to bring that up because what if it reminds my kid of something they used to do? Right. And now they're not doing it anymore. Okay. So in some situations, that may be true. But get ahead of this thing. The thing that makes worry less powerful is when we talk in a very matter-of-fact way about how it operates, about what its game is. We know this worry thing, and it's allowing you to recognize it as a pattern. Because what we know about worry is that it's predictable, it's repetitive, and it's persistent. And so If you had a child who struggled with school avoidance and school refusal before the pandemic, they're not going to come up with a whole lot of new strategies when it's time to go back to school. It's not going to be a whole different ballgame. So you know how I always talk about like, don't get caught up in the content of it. Don't treat this return to school. I mean, it is different because we've had a long time off. So we know that it's different in that way. But don't treat this return to school as a completely different animal in which worry is going to have some completely different things that it's going to do. It's going to be the same church, different pew, right? They were out longer. That's going to make it a little more challenging, which means we really want to start talking about it ahead of time. Even today, if you've got a kid who's a school refusal kid, you could say to your your son, you know what? Things are getting better and the vaccines are coming. And I was just listening to the news or whatever. And school is going to happen in the fall. Or for some families, school is going to happen in May or school is going to happen at the beginning of April. So let's start talking now about what we think worry is going to do. If you have a child who maybe didn't deal with school refusal, where is the role of optimistic talk? Does that have any place if there were positive outcomes that you worked really hard to get your anxious kid to experience at school, for example? Do you repeat those? Do you repeat the benefits? Where does that fit in with the worry talk to? When we talk about that with the puzzle pieces that we lay out in Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, that puzzle piece is bridging back to your successes. 
So building reminder bridges, even though we're going to anticipate that worry is going to show up and take advantage of this opportunity to reassert its cult-like authority over your family, we also really want to talk, just like you say, optimistically about the progress that you made and the things that you learned. We can expect that worry is going to show up, and we also want to connect our kids back to the progress that they'd made, back to the skills that they had learned. Look, let's take this out of the context of anxiety and school refusal for a minute. How much have we been hearing about learning loss, right? And all of this panic, this is the reentry panic, that kids aren't going to remember what they learned. They're not going to remember how to have lunch in the cafeteria. They're not going to remember to do all the things that school kids do on a regular basis. Let's just keep reminding them of the things they were capable of doing. So that is optimistic talk. We can say we can expect that worry is going to come back and is going to try and really say like, oh, this is going to be terrible. But we also want to say to worry, worry, you know what? I don't know if you remember this because you probably really want to forget it anyway. But remember that Madison was able to get on the school bus. And Amy was doing a really good job going into the cafeteria. And Christopher made great progress in being able to get dropped off and walking into school. So connecting back to those successes, we're going to expect the worry to show up, but we're also going to absolutely connect back to the successes that were there. Now, say you have a kid who you you never really got the hang of it, that school refusal was a big issue. You didn't get any help for it, or you tried to get help, and maybe you just hadn't made any headway, and then the pandemic came along, that's going to be a real challenge. And you're going to have to, you're, you're really starting from scratch that's never had a strategy to deal with school refusal. The strategies to deal with school refusal are no different than the strategies that I talk about dealing with worry all the time with the addition of very consistent communication between the school and the parents, a very consistent plan, everybody using the same language. And, you know, when we're talking about school refusal, just in general, the rules of thumb are we want them in the building as quickly as possible, as soon as possible, and for as long as possible. If we've got school refusal kids, either, you know, ones that had trouble before or we're starting from scratch here, we do not want to put those plans in place where a child goes into school for just a few hours or for an hour. The, the pickup plan by the parents is generally a disaster. So if you feel anxious, then mom and dad will be called and be removed from school. You really want to communicate very clearly with the nurse, with the school counselors, that this is the plan. We want him in the building and we want him to stay in the building for as long as possible. None of this jumping in and jumping out stuff doesn't work. You talked about everyone using the same language. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? We're talking process language. So we're saying this is how your worry operates. So if we've got a kid, we've named the worry Frank, we've named it Fred, we know that worry is going to show up. So when you come into school, when you say goodbye to mom, and I know I'm talking a lot about little kids, so I'll talk about teenagers in a minute. But so when you say goodbye to mom or you say goodbye to dad, we know you're going to have the moment of goodbye. We're going to have these big, strong feelings, right? And that's okay. Everybody here can handle your big, strong feelings. We know that they're going to show up. We're going to put words to them. We're going to recognize that this is worry showing up. It might even make your tummy hurt a little bit. It might make your heart feel a little weird. It might make you feel a little shaky. We're learning about how worry operates. And if 
The other language we want to have consistently is that if a child is going to leave the classroom and need to go down to visit the nurse or go down to visit the counselor, that's okay. We're not going to force them to stay in the classroom. But then the language we're going to use is, you know what? Getting back into school has been really tricky, isn't it? And Frank, your worry part is really telling you you can't handle it. It's okay that it feels uncomfortable. It's okay that it feels overwhelming. We're all here to help you manage these big feelings of worry because we know what they are and you're learning how to manage them. That's sort of an abbreviated version, but that's the language we want to use with younger kids. Now I see why you say that school nurses are some of your strongest allies in this. Oh my gosh. School nurses are the best and I love doing trainings with them. And when I am working with a school and I have a really strong relationship with a school nurse, it is just fabulous because these little kids are going to show up in their office and the big kids too. And they know, they learn the traps that you can fall into with worry And they really are so solid and helpful and supportive of parents, right? It's just really helpful when you've got a school nurse who can, you know, if the mom or the dad calls and says like, he's sick and he needs to come home, that the school nurse says, you know what? We know this is his worry. This is what I'm saying. This is what we're doing. And we're really making progress. So, so, so helpful when I have, and the school counselors too. But a lot of times with kids that are somatic, meaning they have a lot of physical symptoms, they'll end up in the school nurse for sure. So what about teens? Teenagers are harder, of course, because they're physically bigger. So you can't use the sack of potatoes technique and just throw them over your shoulder and carry them into the building. You know, you can't get them out of bed. When a teenager is refusing to go to school and refusing to get out of bed, this is an issue. I even have a colleague that I've worked with on some of these cases, and he refers to it as a psychiatric emergency because it is so detrimental to a lot of kids, kids that are anxious to be out of school for long periods of time. The longer a child, a teenager, stays out of school in non-pandemic conditions, of course, but just in the normal course of things, the longer a child stays out of school, the worse we can predict that the mental health outcome is going to be. There is a very clear correlation between school refusal, school avoidance, and increasing levels of depression and all sorts of things. So it is probably unlikely, not totally unprecedented, but probably unlikely that a teenager with a really acute case of school refusal that it just showed up out of the blue when they were in high school. You may have seen it a little bit in elementary school. It tends to get some good momentum during the middle school years. And often at the beginning of high school, it can become rather acute. When we're dealing with with teenagers that have significant school refusal, we really want to pay attention to the combination of anxiety and depression for sure, because the isolation is really difficult for them to deal with and makes them feel more and more depressed. It's interesting during this pandemic because we've got so many teenagers that have been isolated and kids that have trouble connecting socially and even kids that don't have trouble connecting socially, this isolation and this loneliness has taken a toll on their mental health. If you've got a kid, a teenager that you anticipate is going to refuse to go back to school, if this is an ongoing problem or you're beginning to see that it's becoming more acute, I highly recommend that you get ahead of this now. Start thinking about it now. 
maybe it's time if they haven't had any good anxiety-focused therapy, now would be a time to do it. We want to get them to be able to articulate what's going on inside of them. They need somebody to talk to. So if they're refusing to talk to you as parents, get them somebody who they feel like is an ally, who they can begin to work through this. And teenagers who are school refusal kids who have never had any psychoeducation or therapy about anxiety, man, it is so, so helpful for them to understand what's going on inside of them. So, so helpful. So do not wait. Now is the time if you anticipate this is going to be an issue with your teenager. Now's the time. For a lot of kids, school is kind of going to be kind of back in the spring, but we're looking at the fall of it really being back, you know, five days a week like normal school. Use the summer as the best opportunity to get your child some help, to educate yourself about this, to maybe, you know, get some online trainings or read some books or whatever it is that you and your child need to do together to front load this thing. Do not wait until August when they are, you know, as my friend Reed says, putting down all fours and refusing to do it. Do not wait. Start talking about it now. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance, so literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. Lumen is the world's first handheld metabolic coach. It's a device that measures your metabolism through your breath, and on the app, it lets you know if you are burning fat or carbs, and it gives you a tailored guidance to improve your nutrition, workouts, sleep, and even stress management. So how Lumen works is that you breathe into the Lumen device first thing in the morning, and you'll know what's going on with your metabolism, whether you're burning mostly fat or carbs. And then Lumen gives you a personalized nutrition plan for that day based on your measurements. You can also breathe into it before and after workouts and meals, so you know exactly what's going on in your body in real time. And Lumen will give you tips to keep you on top of your health game. I love the extra data that I'm getting about my health right now. 
because for many women of my age, as we are going through a long chapter of hormone changes, Lumen's helping me use my body's data to make the best choices. So your metabolism is your body's engine. It's how your body turns the food you eat into the fuel that keeps you going. And because your metabolism is at the center of everything your body does, optimal metabolic health translates to a bunch of benefits, including easier weight management, improved energy levels, and better sleep, which is key. So Lumen gives you recommendations to improve your metabolic health. So what is metabolic flexibility and why should you care? Well, the key to metabolic health is something called metabolic flexibility. We love flexibility at Fluster Clucks, and that's where Lumen really shines. It refers to your body's ability to efficiently switch between using different fuel sources like carbs and fats, and there are preferred times to use each, and how well you can switch places you on the metabolic flexibility spectrum. So after getting to know you through your breath, Lumen gives you a metabolic flex score that you can track and improve upon. So if you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fluster to get $100 off Lumen. That's L-U-M-E-N-D-O-T-M-E. And use Fluster at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. When you talk about a teen essentially having like a psychoeducation to start using those tools to help with this mm -hmm. and a parent's listening to this episode, where do they start? It's a big phrase. What do you mean by that? What are those steps and skills that parents need to say, okay, well, we have done that. Oh, no, but we haven't done that. And okay, we clearly need to do that. Yeah. So the first thing is that for a family to do, I mean, there are a lot of great books, you know, and, and there are a lot of a lot of great trainings. Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents lays it out. Um, Reed Wilson's website, anxieties.com has a great, and we'll probably actually, Robin, we should put a link um, to Reed's video series in the show notes. We have it on the Fluster Clucks website under the resources section. Perfect. So take a look at that because I think this sort of connects to the episode that we just put out, which is what are the mistakes to avoid? So I think when I'm talking about psychoeducation, I'm really talking about understanding how avoidance and safety behaviors and accommodations make the problem worse. And the first step that you want to do as a parent is you really want to look at that and you want to look at how in your family the anxiety is calling the shots. Do you have information? Have you talked to people? Have you read my book or watched videos or anything that will say to you, this is how we treat anxiety, cognitive behavioral approaches, being able to say, let's look and see where the accommodation shows up. How are we catering to the cult leader? And then really having conversations with your teenager about how we're going to interrupt the patterns that anxiety brings to the table. The patterns are really clear. It's about avoidance. It's about not tolerating uncertainty. It's about oftentimes you as the parent being the safety crutch, the source of reassurance, having a hard time letting your child do things that will cause them distress. 
all of that parenting information is really, really helpful. So that's the place to start. I say this all the time. Anxiety can feel big and huge and overwhelming, but the way that it operates, it's not that complicated. It's really, really predictable and redundant. And when you learn about it from good resources, not the resources that will say, make sure your child knows everything ahead of time, but the resources that say, this is what we know about anxiety. I think is a great place to start. There's another book that just came out very recently by somebody I know. His name is Ellie Leibowitz, and he actually does the a program out of Yale, the space program, which really looks at how parents need coaching and support in order to help their children with anxiety. So his book just came out. We'll put it in the show notes. It just came out, but we'll put the title in there. So resources like that, that are really giving parents information about coaching your child and not doing the things that are both intuitive and unfortunately detrimental. Do you feel like as a parent in that situation, the conversation should be skewed more to tools about anxiety and talking less about the depression that's most likely also present? Or do you feel like they're kind of a combo? With teenagers, they really are a combo. And I think a lot of what parents will say to me, and and somebody just asked this on the Facebook page, I think today, saying, they say, what if we do if our teenager isn't motivated to take these steps? What do we do if our teenager doesn't want to take these steps? And that's really an indicator that they don't feel very hopeful, that they don't really think anything is going to change, that they don't think that it's possible for them to get out of this. That lack of energy, that lack of hopefulness, or that lack of action, all of that stuff is indicative of a teenager who's moved into depression. So you really want to treat them concurrently. It's, you know, it's very, very common for kids that feel really anxious for a long time to move into that place of passivity. And depression is really crippling when kids don't have support in coaching and sort of the belief, somebody has to have the belief, right? Somebody has to have the optimism. Somebody has to have the skills and the energy to get them moving again so that they can see that change is possible. So anxiety certainly is a feeder into depression. And if you've got a teenager who's really shut down, you want to deal with both for sure. Ask for help. You know, don't wait on this. Don't wait. And if you have a kid who was having difficulty before the pandemic and during all of these months, you've been anticipating like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get this kid back to school? Start thinking about it now. Don't wait and talk about it openly. Just put it out on the table. Say to your teenager, you know what? I know you're struggling with this and I think we just really need to talk about it. The hardest thing for parents to deal with of teenagers is when a teenager says no. Mm -mm, not going to do it. Okay, that happens. You as a parent should still get as much information as you can. It is okay. It's not great, but it's okay if at the beginning your teenager doesn't want to have anything to do with this, still educate yourself. Enormously helpful for you to have the information. This thing runs in families. It's probably not completely foreign to the other family members. So, When you have a high school student, when you have a teenager that is absolutely refusing to participate in school, refusing to go to school, that is really, really hard. I am going to say this with as much sort of empathy and care as I possibly can. If you're seeing this show up earlier, if your child is now 10 or 6 or 12, do not wait 
until they're 16 or even 14 or 15 to address this. The earlier you start talking about this, the easier it is to deal with. If you've got a 17-year-old, I know how hard it is. I absolutely do. It's the biggest thing that comes up when I talk to people who work in schools. So if at all possible, do not ignore this when you see it showing up early because it's really treatable if we can get ahead of it. It's treatable later on too, but so much easier to treat when the child is younger. Most kids are actually going to be okay during this. Most kids are going to be okay because kids go through transitions all the time. Parents go through transitions all the time. So let's think about it as a transition that we're moving from one, albeit very bizarre, stage of life to another stage of life that actually is kind of familiar, so it's not totally new. So let's think about it as a transition. There are kids that are going to have trouble for sure, but the majority of kids and the majority of families If you normalize it, if you pay attention to your words, they're going to be okay and they're going to move into this next stage with actually some optimism and some hooray and isn't this going to be great that we're not in the crisis anymore. So just pay attention to that. So Lynn, what do you think are some good old Lynn Lyons mantras to set the tone, even if a parent is anxious about this, but knows they want to not project their own anxiety, what are some phrases they should throw around? How about, you know what? Life is full of so many different stages, isn't it? They're like chapters in a book. And we're now, we've been in a really weird chapter and now we're going into the next chapter. So, you know, I talk a lot about global language versus parts. This is a really good time to talk about parts. It's also a really good time to emphasize strengths. So it doesn't mean that you dismiss what your kids are feeling or that you try and suppress what you're feeling, but we talk about strengths. We say, you know, we've all gone through these transitions before, haven't we? And we've we've figured something things out. So this might even be a little bit of an easier transition than some of the other ones that we've made. I don't know. Let's see how it goes. So you want to roll around in the mites and maybes. You want to talk about things of sort of like, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it's going to be interesting. So you're setting the stage, not for certainty. Stay away from all that reassurance. Like, it'll be fine. Nothing's going to happen. Don't. When we say that, right, if somebody looks at you in the eye and says, everything will be fine, your immediate thought is like, why are you saying that to me? What do you mean? I did think everything was going to be fine. Why are you saying it in that way? Stay away from that language and just be matter of fact about it. It sort of reminds me, you know, when I think about transitions, when my kids were little and when I was on my mommy break from from working full time, I used to teach at a gym and we would have classes, you know, spin classes or whatever at nine o'clock in the morning or 830 in the morning. And on the first day of of school, all the moms, because it was mostly moms. So all the moms who had dropped their kids off at kindergarten would come into their spin class or their step class and just cry for an hour because it was a transition. Let's put this in a strength based way. Let's talk about it in terms of being able to step into something. Let's be adaptable. What if it wasn't the transition and what if it was your teaching that made them cry? Um, There's just no evidence to support that theory (laughs) at all. But, you know, thanks for looking at it from a different perspective. But there's no, no evidence at all to support that theory. Okay, fair enough. You taught one spin class at 6 a.m., is that right? 5.30 a.m. Yeah, I would just show up crying anyway, so. Yeah, so. yeah. for 20 years, I taught spin classes at 5.30 in the morning. Ugh. Yeah, 
but I, I've retired from that particular vocation. I admire you. One of our listeners shared with me that she's going to have a COVID graduation when her children go back to school full-time in a couple of weeks. And she's going to really emphasize all of these unexpected skills that we all got good at during the pandemic and what it meant to learn remotely and to be at home all the time. So I thought that was a fantastic idea, frankly, for, you know, kids of any age. I love that. And even as you're saying that, I'm thinking that you could make like a COVID yearbook and you could have superlatives like best bread maker or best at finding something to do when there's nothing to do. I mean, you could have all sorts of fun with that with your kids. My mind just shows where our family was at was like the longest stretch of not changing clothes. Oh, yeah. My son was insistent. I would say like, don't you think it's time to put on a new shirt? And he'd say, this is my pandemic outfit. Okay, fair enough. My son pointed out that my husband wore the same outfit every day like a cartoon character. So he was like Fred Flintstone or Homer Simpson, like same outfit every single day. Well, his little nephew joined him. Okay, fantastic. And my sister, who I know listens to the podcast, hello, uh, she told me this weekend that she did a stretch of not showering for eight days. In the in the, in the the stark freezing cold of January. I remember like it, it was in the middle of January and it was like, wow, I've only showered once this year and it's, you know, January 27th. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun to come up with all sorts of superlatives with your family? Longest without a shower. Like, I don't think she got into anything like water for eight days. I think the colder the climate you live in, the more leeway you get too. Yeah, and she lives far north of me. So we'll give her we're, we'll give her an excuse. But when we get back into the world, caring and self-care and maybe just taking a shower and washing your hair, changing your underwear... Maybe maybe we just want to step it up a little bit. I would love it if you, a Fluster Clucks listeners, if you guys come up with some great superlatives for your COVID graduation in your book, if you would share them with us. I'd love to hear what people are coming up with. Let's start that thread in the Fluster Clucks Facebook group so that we can all think of the superlatives that people in our households have earned. So play with this transition, right? It's a, It's time. Remember, we know... I've said this a gazillion times, I'll say it again. When your kids see you laughing, when they see you having fun, when they see you being joyful, it really shows them that things are going to be okay. So as we're making this transition back to school, show them that it's okay. Show them it's okay. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. 
I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.